the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. As we introduce our guest tonight, I am reminded of many of the weddings, certainly down through the years that I have attended, where generally after a few glowing words that are spoken by a minister in attendance, uh, there's an exchange of vows, and, and much of this seems to focus on largely the notion that they're going to live happily ever after they are completed in each other, uh, that there is uh, just a wonderful thing that happens when two people come and, and pledge their love in marriage. And then, of course, reality sets in. And I, and I say that somewhat with tongue planted in cheek, but yet I think a lot of us have some pretty big distortions about what marriage is, what the roles are between the spouses, and uh, what the expectations ought to be. And boy, especially in this arena of expectations, uh, oftentimes people are in for a very rude, rude awakening. And of course, uh, the evidence of that is the divorce rate in America today. Well, Dr. Chris Thurman has taken the time to dig down into many of these myths concerning marriage and outright says, look, uh, you need to rethink your approach. You need to go into this by being transformed by the truth if you're going to have a hope of a successful marriage relationship. Dr. Thurman, as we mentioned, is an author. He is also a Christian psychologist. He's conducted hundreds of personal growth seminars addressing uh, topics including marriage. And his new book is called The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. And Dr. Thurman, good to have you with us on the program. Craig, thank you so much for having me. Boy, this is an experience in life where amazingly a lot of married couples go into this thing with eyes wide closed, don't they? Well, unfortunately, we do. We walk down the aisle and uh, we think we might have a pretty good handle on what we're getting into, but uh, God certainly uses the marital relationship to um, challenge us and to get us to uh, see more clearly what marriage is all about and how he's trying to use it to help us to mature. This this image first out the gate, and it largely seems to be uh, kind of the thing of which uh, fairy tales are made of as opposed to most realistic and long-term marriages, and that is this notion that we're going to live happily ever after, that once we say I do and the ring exchange has taken place, that it, it's only the rare couple or the people that don't work hard enough that end up getting into trouble. But most don't most couples, when they go into this, really think that, that they've got all they need to be successful? 
I think they do, Craig. I think that's a common assumption that people make. Um, and I do think that we buy into kind of the Hollywood notion that um, it will be happily ever after. And uh, as you said earlier, the reality of marriage being difficult and people being fallen and hurtful at times uh, begins to set in, and then we're not so happy, and we begin to question if we're not careful having gotten married, and we begin to think about other options and uh, think that happiness might be somewhere else out there for us. Hmm. Failed or incomplete expectations. That that seems to kind of be one of the most glaring, if we had to look for uh, maybe an overall overreaching, overarching phrase about where people run into so much trouble, doesn't it? That their expectations for what marriage is about, their expectations about how they're going to relate to their spouse, how their spouse will relate to them, is oftentimes one of the big danger areas, isn't it? I think it is. I think we do, uh, even if it's unconsciously, I think we go into marriage with these uh, fairly lofty expectations and that uh, oftentimes are not all that grounded in reality as to what a person can bring to us, what we can bring to them. And so expectations can be a real killer in a marriage and lead people to be bitter and resentful when those expectations are not lived up to. Let's reset a few. Early on in the book, and and when I read your new book, The Lies Couples Believe, I thought, boy, um, (laughs) wouldn't this upset a lot of brides who were busy uh, writing their marriage vows uh, to read the book and and specifically your chapter on uh, how the spouse will complete me or will meet all of my needs. I've been to many weddings where the vows that are exchanged and lovingly you even see this take place during the reception when they're toasting each other or cutting the cake, how that my husband so-and-so, my wife so-and-so, she completes me. And that flowerly language sounds lovey-dovey, but it falls short of a major reality, doesn't it, Doctor? It does. Um, You know, the reality of every human being is that we're finite, and uh, we can't possibly meet the total package of needs that another human being has. But again, we buy into the idea that if we have found the right person, they're going to be capable of completely meeting every need that we have. And uh, what I try to discuss in that chapter is God has a wide variety of healthy, appropriate ways to meet your total package of needs, and that we need to be careful not to drop all of our needs on our spouse's doorstep. And that's pretty uh, pretty unrealistic, too, isn't it? I mean, in terms of the enormous amount of pressure that it puts on an individual. I mean, think certainly from a Christian perspective, uh, we ought to be thinking about God as the one Uh, who is most completely and fully capable of meeting all of our needs, to put that kind of pressure on a spouse, to have that level of expectation, I mean, it it would seem to me you're you're setting yourself up for disappointment because, let's face it, we all make mistakes. We're all frail. We're all human. We are still all struggling with sin. Well, we are, and, uh, you know, I I don't think God is bothered that we put that pressure on him because he's omni. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere at once. So he's not intimidated by us turning to him for our needs to be met. And, And I think he 
my own understanding is that he wants us to be incredibly careful about not putting that kind of pressure on a spouse or a best friend or anyone else down here on earth. We're talking about this matter of being transformed by truth in marriage relationships with Dr. Chris Thurman. The new book is called The Lies Couples Believe, and I I find it interesting because we get into early chapters in the book that talk about the misnomer of happily ever after or how that my spouse will complete me or meet all of my needs, and it's very evident that those two misconceptions alone sets the marriage off the rails pretty quickly that the balance of the chapters in the book deal with now the sudden attempt at compensation when things are not going idealistically. And, of course, we find out that there's an awful lot of lies that we believe in that attempt to try and compensate or reason our way through why things aren't going as idealistically as we thought they would or should. We'll talk about that further as our discussion continues. Dr. Chris Thurman, our guest, he is the author of The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to our conversation. Craig Roberts along with Dr. Chris Thurman. His new book, The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. Let's talk a bit about um, how this goes off the rails pretty quickly, Doctor. And you dive into this fairly early on in the book. One of the, one of the lies that is oft repeated, and I think it's our, sort of our attempt to try and, and, and mentally uh, justify the early cracks that we see in the fuselage, so to speak, in our marriage, and that is this notion that, well, yeah, there's some difficulties here, but my spouse is really the bigger problem. You know, Craig, I think that's very common for people to um, think that way. Uh, it is my spouse who's got more issues. They are the more troubled person. They have the bigger plank in their eye than I do in mine. And that kind of uh, mindset obviously is pretty hurtful to the person that you're married to. Uh, it's pretty, uh, for lack of a better word, it's pretty arrogant for us to think that uh, we are not equally as big of a mess as a human being. And um, it's just sad that we would ever, you know, have that attitude and uh, not have a more humble attitude of, you know, I've got my issues. Uh, I am just as much a co-creator of our marital health or sickness, and I need to be uh, humble about that when I'm interacting with my spouse. You know, oftentimes that same distorted perception as to who the problem is also tends to be a means by which we sort of self-justify by saying, well, you know, at the end of the day, I'm making the effort. I'm doing all the hard work. Some spouses might say, well, I work all day long and I bring home the paycheck. Or the other spouse says, yeah, but I'm taking care of the kids and taking care of the house. And so as a result, I'm entitled to my spouse's love. Talk to us about that lie. Craig, the the whole issue of entitlement uh, is especially toxic in marriage. And that's a tough uh, teaching to go into these days because I think, unfortunately, uh, we're almost 
raised to think that we are entitled. You know, we're entitled to the good life. We're entitled to be treated with respect. And when it comes to marriage, if we're not careful, we think we're entitled to our spouse being loving, entitled to them being kind, entitled to them uh, carrying their fair share of the load. So what I'm after in that chapter is I want us to consider shifting away from an entitlement mindset to I would like my spouse to uh, love me. I would like my spouse to help me carry the load. More of a humble attitude of I want that from them. I'm not entitled to it, but I desire it. There's also this notion that we oftentimes... um we'll try to justify some of our own faults or failures by saying, well, you know, I am the way I am because uh, no, you know, no fault of my own. This was the way I was raised. I realize that I have simple or a certain uh, uh, failures or faults. But at the end of the day, my spouse just has to accept me the way I am. And, of course, that usually is coupled with and but all of the defects that he or she has. I'm going to work toward changing them. They have to change, not me. Yes, I uh, in that chapter I mentioned the uh, cartoon Popeye <clears throat> because one of his more iconic lines was "I am who I am," and um, what I'm going into there is a lot of people have that attitude, and it's really kind of a smokescreen for I don't want you to push me to change, I don't want you to be on me about anything that I might need to polish off the rough edges of. So do we need acceptance from our spouse? Yes, of course we do. Are they supposed to accept us warts and all? Absolutely. But does that mean that we shouldn't be open to them saying, hey, I don't like this about you. Would you be willing to work on not being that way? I think a marriage that isn't an iron sharpening iron marriage is a no-growth marriage. So I'm very concerned whenever my couples that come to see me kind of wrap themselves in the accept me as I am flag and basically don't want to do any changing while they're married. Mm. Now, toward that end, there's also this notion that um, we would get along better if they would just think like me. This runs into cases, for example, in a marriage where there's a spender and a saver who have married. And we're saying, well, if my if my spouse, who's this major spender, would just become a saver like me, if they just act or think or be like me, that would fix all the problems. You know, I have to admit uh, that's one of mine. Um, I'm not stereotyping military families, but I grew up in a military family. And uh, we were really told, you know, this is the way you clean things. This is the way you organize things. You need to wax it, shine it, windex it, salute it, and uh, this is the right way to do it. So when I married my wife, Holly, 35 years ago, I had a pretty uh, stubborn attitude about, you know, you need to be like me. I'm the one who knows how to do it right. And if you're not doing it the way I do it, then you're obviously wrong and you need to adjust. And... Uh, You can imagine how poorly that goes over with another human being who um, is more than free to be the person God made them to be and to have their own style and to not uh, apologize for that. Let's talk about some other issues here that really go to the core of dealing with bitterness and anger. And uh, it's interesting because this reminds me of the person as they're, as they're suggesting that 
um, spouse must, for example, the the other offending spouse must be the first one to forgive or has to earn forgiveness from the opposite spouse, that this oftentimes also becomes a place where we suddenly find ourselves not only trying to negotiate the, the topic of forgiveness with our spouse, but I would suspect it's like trying to negotiate the terms of forgiveness with God. I think so, and uh, that was one of the tougher chapters of the book to write because um, I think a lot of us do think that forgiveness has to be earned and that the other person has to repent of what they're doing before we will uh, bless them, if you will, with our forgiveness. And so in that chapter, I try to go into the idea that I think is biblically solid, which is forgiveness is commanded. Uh, God says forgive. And so we are not to wait on forgiving somebody. We are not to uh, make them jump through certain hoops before we forgive. Um, and uh, I think that's a hard thing for people to, to do, especially when the other person isn't sorry and they haven't stopped. So I try to distinguish between forgiving somebody and what it takes to reconcile with them, which is another chapter of the book. But And, of course, ironically, as we talk about that in perspective of our relationship with God, you know, it, it, certainly he wants there to be reconciliation. God wants to be reconciled unto his creation, wants to walk in fellowship and relationship with his creation. But we also have to recognize that on God's terms, it requires repentance. Yes, and that's uh, a distinction that a lot of people also uh, are a little bit slow to get to. Uh, I try to use the uh, prodigal son story to drive home the issue of forgiveness versus reconciliation. And so in that story, as far as I can tell, the forgiveness had already been granted, if you will, by the father to his son before he returned from the foreign land. So forgiveness was already achieved, but the reconciliation couldn't take place until the son came out of the foreign land. So with my couples, I push them pretty hard on, hey, guys, you're kidding yourself if you think you guys can reconcile if neither of you are repentant of what you've been doing wrong that's been hurtful to the other person. The new book is called The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. And the book, by the way, is newly published by David C. Cook and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as the usual suspects, Amazon.com, and also through Dr. Thurman's website, Dr. Chris Thurman, Dr. Just Abbreviated DR, DrChrisThurman.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There is an idyllic formula for life, and I think we all know how generally it goes. You have school-age crushes. You fall in love around the age of 17 or so. Then you're off to college by 18. You marry your high school sweetheart by 22, buy a home, raise a family, retire. You die, and someday you're buried by your surviving children. That's the idyllic formula. Of course, we know that Contrary to that, life often hands us something quite different. And when that formula falls out of order, it can create a tremendous amount of pain. It can cause people to be stumbling in their relationships, both spiritual as well as with their relationships on the 
horizontal plane. How do you go about recovering from life when it happens out of order? Joining me today in studio is Pamela Prime, author of When the Moon is Dark, We Can See the Stars. And Pamela, welcome to the program. Thank you, Craig. Your life kind of happened out of order, in a sense. It did. (laughs) Particularly so, and I think that every parent who's heard of these stories immediately gets that sort of quickening in their hearts that, oh, I never want that to happen to me, that sense that we are supposed to be buried by our children. We're not supposed to bury our children. Mm -hmm. And yet that happened to you not once but twice in a relatively short period of time and then compounded with a divorce after many, many years of marriage. How did all that impact you in terms of your viewpoint on life and your relationship to God? Craig, really the reason I wrote the book is to support people who go through difficult times in their life and to let them know that there there really is light at the end of the tunnel. I feel so blessed by God to have a life that is filled with joy, regardless of the fact that I have had suffering. And I wanted to share that with people and give people hope and also support people who are going through something at the particular moment that they may have read the book or be reading the book. You describe your experience as feeling lonely and isolated. And it's funny because so oftentimes we'll go through the loss of a loved one. There will be a grieving process. There Mm -hmm. will be a funeral. People send cards. They send flowers. They telephone us. They send over the proverbial, the, the casserole for dinner and things of this sort. They try to give us a lot of attention. And yet there's a time when that activity slows down. And then suddenly you're left with that sense of the why questions Uh and struggling through that that tremendous sense of loss and that isolation. It's amazing that you can be surrounded by people and yet because of that experience you feel so terribly lonely and isolated. I I think that the the loneliness I felt was more around my my marriage than around the deaths of the children, Mm. oddly enough. Uh, There was a sense of loneliness even though I was married because we weren't able to really communicate in the way that uh, I had hoped, or I think even he had hoped. And um, and it was a sense of, of really needing to to find a way to either communicate or to separate. And um, I, I think I, I sometimes would say to myself that having to go through a divorce was almost more painful because it was a, really a dream that was just completely broken. And I wasn't able to live out what I had hoped. I have always believed that the children are gifts from God. I have five children, two of whom live with God in the spirit world, and three of whom I see very often and who have grandchildren. And I feel blessed with the three that I have, and I feel blessed with the two that are with God. But they are gods. I've been given them just for a short period of time. You have to look at it from a perspective of of the children being on loan from God. Exactly. And that's not to say that I didn't grieve very, very deeply when each of those children passed to God. You mentioned about that tremendous sense, though, of isolation and loneliness over the marriage. And it's interesting because as much as I point to uh, how we will have a grieving process and and culture provides for... Mm -hmm. uh, sympathy cards and acknowledgement yes. of the loss and things of this sort but that really doesn't happen around a divorce does no, it the death it of doesn't. a marriage you don't no. you don't get people don't send you cards you don't no. get flowers i think people who have had to go through divorce really understand that no one would do that unless they absolutely had to 
that it's a it's a very painful thing to have to do and um i often i often think what if i didn't have to do that what if if the marriage were still there and yet it it wasn't and i have to acknowledge that it was just the way it was meant to be was it important for you to come to a point in life pamela where you grieved for the loss oh, of I that oh i grieved deeply i grieved deeply even before uh i i separated from my my husband because I could see it coming, I could feel it coming, and there was some way that, you know, it's like a wave, we couldn't stop it. And um, I'm going to cry myself to sleep, because I knew that's what I was going to have to do. A lot of people go through that experience, be it the loss of a loved one that's very near and dear, or a marriage, and those past injuries, those old wounds, they continue as, as untreated, gaping wounds that continue to fester and oftentimes hinder our spiritual progress and certainly hamper our relationship with God and with others. Did you find yourself going through that? What what set you on the spiritual journey that you took to sort of get reconnected with God in a deep way and to go looking for, for a lot of the answers that you sought? Well, when Maggie died, she was four months old. I really wasn't involved in spirituality. I went to church every week, and I had a relationship with God that I think was significant. But I didn't have any awareness. I hadn't done a lot of reading or studying. It wasn't until Sean died, and Sean died when he was 16. He took his own life. But at that point, I was studying theology, and I was much more aware. I also had experienced the death of a child, so I knew I wasn't going to die. With Maggie, I I didn't know if I could continue living. I, I wasn't suicidal, but it was the pain was so great that how does one live you know, with that level of pain. And that had been a, a difficult childbirth, as I recall. It from was the a book. very difficult childbirth, then yes. Then you went through postpartum depression, which I don't know at that time, did we even really understand? Did we have a name for it at no, that No, I, I, I don't think we did. Uh, I don't know. I think people did understand that there was some, some sort of hormonal change that was happening, that, that women who just gave birth would be sad. But with Maggie, it was the shock of having a, a C-section and... And and just I just was completely undone at her birth. She almost died at her birth. Yeah, I that that must have been a particularly painful because it was a challenging childbirth. Yes, and and both of your lives were at risk at one point. Were they, they were not? yes. So to get through all of that and kind of have the we made it through. Right. She survived. I survived. Right. And then four months later, this huge black dark cloud rolls in on top right. of your life with sudden her, infant death her loss yeah that sets a lot of people into a downward spiral that some folks unfortunately never really recover from that's right and i do a lot of work with people who have lost children and i don't know if i could say overcome but i have regained my strength emotionally and I've spent a lot of time with the pain, feeling the pain with God and asking for healing. Do you think that's important? And I ask that, Pamela, because so often our society is is created in a fashion or we're encouraged in a fashion to try to avoid pain or anesthetize pain. People go through different things in life and I can't handle it. So they reach to the pill bottle, they go to the booze, maybe they begin overeating. There, there's something in there or become a workaholic. It's something in there that distracts them from going through the pain. And I'm reminded that 
Christ certainly never promised us that there would be no pain. In fact, we're reminded in Scripture that the rain falls in both the just and the unjust. And so that sense maybe of the importance of learning that we are capable in him and through him to go through the pain as opposed to going around it. That's exactly. And I think being a Christian, I could sit with Jesus and I could, he could understand me and I could sit with Mary. I'm raised Catholic, so Mary has been always important to me in my life. She, she knows what it's like to lose a child. She does she? know what it's like to lose a child. And so she became a, a great companion for me as I grieved the death of my children. And with Sean particularly, I I think I had the wisdom to understand that if I didn't feel the pain and allow myself to really experience it, that I would never be to the other side. I I would have done something to anesthetize myself. And it becomes a a major stumbling block, doesn't it? I mean, if if you don't go through the grieving process, if you don't, in a sense, legitimize the pain... Sometimes we want to hide it because we don't know how to handle it, or society is telling us to buck up, hang in there. Exactly. I bet there were people that said, well, now, Pamela, but you still have three other children. What about them? Yes. Is this somehow you're going to have that, uh, you know, uh, slap on the forehead moment and say, oh, of course, what was I thinking? Right. People sometimes just don't really understand, do they? No, they don't. In their effort to try and be kind, they're actually heaping more more coals upon our heads unwittingly. Well, you, you said it in the beginning that uh, this ha- losing a child for many people is their worst fear. And so they don't want to see you in pain. So, gosh, it's been a year. Aren't you okay? And it's uncomfortable for people to be with other people who are grieving, especially if you're not willing to feel your own pain. You don't want to be with people that are in pain. I have a lot of compassion for people who are grieving because I've felt my pain. Not to say that I, there won't be another moment where, where I'll experience an aspect of my past that I need to spend time with God with, because we never know when we're finished. We never know when, when everything has been healed. Uh, but I, I do have compassion for people because I'm not afraid of pain. Pain has transformed me. If you've just joined us, my guest today is Pamela Prime, author of When the Moon is Dark, We Can See the Stars. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Joining me today in studio is Pamela Prime. Now, Pamela, you touch on a very valid point that I want to have you sort of underscore, bold, and italicize for a moment. And that is that we never quite know when we're done with it all in the sense of that that healing process and that grieving process. We we tend sometimes to be take such a, a formula approach to this very close friend of mine who lost her husband two and a half, three years ago, commented to me the other day that, you know, I'm really having a tough time because I'm not over it yet. Mm-hmm. And I thought about that statement and it occurred, I, I finally said to her, I said, you know, is this something you really want to get over? You were married for what, 45, almost 50 years? Is that something you want to get over? When you say get over, what, what do you mean? You mean forget about your marriage and three quarters of your life are you saying that you want to forget all of the pain and maybe part of the problem here is that our approach to pain is to avoid it 
or to be anesthetized from it instead of growing through it. And it seems like what you discovered is walking through Scripture, you realize that this is a process that we don't go around, but we have to go through, and that we can actually grow through that pain, and that that process is not necessarily something that's instantaneous, like, you know, a cup of cold water in the microwave, and 30 seconds later you've got boiling water. That It might be a lifetime. Absolutely. I think our life is spent um, growing and maturing in our spirituality and our awareness of who we are and who God is and how we are in relationship. You know, I, I, I really think that to understand that we are God's beloved, we have to walk the path. We can't, we just don't, uh, I don't know, there's some way, and I don't like to use the word we earn, the awareness of we are God's beloved, but we certainly have to reach deep into our souls to experience that's who we are. And if we have blocks there because we haven't felt the pain or the anger or the fear, then we aren't going to get to that place of joy and wonder and acceptance of God's love. Pamela Prime is with us today. The book, When the Moon is Dark, We Can See the Stars. Part of this challenge of managing pain and grief and loss it tends to have a bit of family legacy or history to it, doesn't it? At one point in the book, you talk about um, sort of that history of having grown up and then later on in life carrying on that sense of that, you know, we don't trust, we don't feel, we don't tell. There are a lot of families that are like that. Yes. Uh, things that go on inside the family that might be a family secret. Uh, it can be something severe on that end or just simply a pattern in which we shut off feelings and emotions as a way of dealing with them. And, of course, we know that that ends up warping our relationships and, and certainly our relationship with God. What was the turning point for you to begin to say that, you know, that, that, that legacy, so to speak, that you have been raised with and it continued on in your life of that don't trust, don't feel, don't tell. At what point did you say, we need to short-circuit this? I think the beginning was the death of Maggie, because I had to feel those feelings. There was no way I could get out from underneath them. But I had another experience of being in the kitchen with my papers, getting ready to teach a CCD, a class on Christian education, to the sixth graders. And the topic was God's love. And and I sat there looking out the window, and I thought, how am I going to teach these children about God's love? And I, and I was looking at the flowers. It was spring, and the flowers were beautiful. And I was thinking, well, one way I could teach them was would just take them out into the, the fields and the gardens and talk about the beauty of nature and how God has given this all to us. And suddenly I had this awareness of God's love that was so overwhelming that I felt it in every cell of my body. Mm. And I went running to the Bible. At that point in my life, I don't think I didn't even have a Bible. Um, I, I had one family Bible in the house, but I didn't have one that I read every day. And I grabbed this family Bible and I started pouring through it because I wanted to know who this God was that was loving me beyond anything I could possibly ever imagine. And I knew at that point that it wasn't just me, that it was everyone and everything in creation that this love was just beyond anything that I possibly had ever experienced Our before. Our eyes sometimes get blinded to that, like the proverbial horse with the blinders on. We see just down that narrow yeah. tunnel of the road ahead of us, and 
you know, you would think of the example that you'd say, how do we demonstrate God's love when there's so much pain in the earth and there's so much suffering? Exactly. And to try to explain to a young child who could, as you're talking about God is love and what we see demonstrated of God's love through the sacrifice of his son in scripture, who couldn't readily raise a hand and say, but wait a minute. How do you explain away the fact that my daddy was killed in the war Mm -hmm. or mommy and daddy are no longer married or, you know, whatever a child might bring up is the pain that they're they're dealing with. And to to be able to see that God's love transcends all of that. Yes. And that he loves us through those painful experiences. Walks with us, carries us. I mean, tears with us. And uh, I I think sometimes we focus so much on what's wrong that we forget about focusing on what's exquisite and on on God. Do we have to work hard? That passage in Scripture comes to mind, labor to enter into his rest. Do we have to work hard to labor into experiencing his joy? And I ask that question because some people may just want to plop themselves down in a room and say, okay, God, make it all happen. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> this is a journey, isn't it? It definitely is a journey. You I mean, talk that... in the book about praying and fasting mm-hmm. and reading, and you even went back to school. You were studying uh, theology with the Jesuits. Yes. There's some effort at this, isn't there? Well, there is an effort, but there's also uh, there's also the experience of God causing that effort. Do you know there's some way in which I was called into prayer and called to study and called to search and called because the longing that I had in me that I was feeling was really God longing for me. Mm. And it was my response. And the deeper you go in, the deeper he draws you in. Well, yes, because because then you're available Mm. to God for those calls. So it's it's a really, it's a love relationship, really. And um, I think that lover wants all of us. (laughs) He does indeed, doesn't he? Yes. On this edition of Lifeline, Pamela Prime is with us today. We're going to take a brief time out, have her share some closing thoughts as this edition of Lifeline continues.